But if you call yourself a Jew and rely upon the law and boast of your relation to God and know his will and approve what is excellent because you are instructed in the law, and if you are sure that you are a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness, a corrector of the foolish, a teacher of children, having in the law the embodiment of knowledge and truth, you then who teach others, will you not teach yourself? While you preach against stealing, do you steal? You who say that one must not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who boast in the law, do you dishonor God by breaking the law? For as it is written, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. Circumcision indeed is of value if you obey the law. But if you break the law, your circumcision becomes uncircumcision. So if a man who is uncircumcised keeps the precepts of the law, will not his uncircumcision be regarded as circumcision? Then those who are physically uncircumcised but keep the law will condemn you who have the written code and circumcision but break the law. For he is not a real Jew who is one outwardly, nor is true circumcision something external and physical. He is a Jew who is one inwardly, and real circumcision is a matter of the heart, spiritual and not literal. His praise is not from men, but from God. Then what advantage has the Jew? Or what is the value of circumcision? Much in every way. To begin with, the Jews are entrusted with the oracles of God. What if some were unfaithful? Does their faithlessness nullify the faithfulness of God? By no means. Let God be true, though every man be false. As it is written, that thou mayest be justified in thy words and prevail when thou art judged. But if our wickedness serves to show the justice of God, what shall we say, that God is unjust to inflict wrath on us? I speak in a human way. By no means. For then how could God judge the world? But if through my falsehood God's truthfulness abounds to his glory, why am I still being condemned as a sinner? And why not do evil that good may come, as some people slanderously charge us with saying? Their condemnation is just. Let us pray. Open, O Lord, the fountains of truth and light, that thy word may break upon our soul with all its force in Christ's name. It's a grand thing in God's providence that right at Reformation Sunday we should be in the heart of the book of Romans because no book was so pivotal to the Reformation revival as Paul's letter to the Romans. Luther himself wrote that you can never grapple with the book of Romans too much because the more it is handled, the more delightful it becomes. 
And the more it is chewed, the better it tastes. That's true, because Romans, as we've been seeing, unfolds the mysteries of the human heart. And at the same time, the glories of the ways of God. This section, 217 to 3.8, may seem to us to be a bit removed from where we are. That is, it's pointed toward the Jew with his particular problems in facing the gospel. And what does that have to do with us? Much in every way. Great parallels. Because the Jew had privileges which were accompanied with certain dangers. And we who have the advantage of a Christian atmosphere for our training and our country and our church, who dwell in the midst of Christian influences, experience some of the same advantages and therefore have also some of the same problems to face. God's goal for the Jew and the Gentile is the same. The goal of God is glory coming to himself from a righteous heart. God's goal is glory that comes to himself from a righteous heart. And this passage shows us God moving toward that goal in a very unusual way. Here he's showing to us that in the plan of God, some people have the advantage of revealed religion. Not all, but some do. And the Jew had that advantage. There is a great privilege in being in the setting where revealed religion is preeminent. A great privilege. And these privileges are enumerated here from verse 17. For example, the reliance upon the law. You rely upon the law. We take the law for granted. We read it together this morning, part of it. But think of the law as a tremendous platform on which the mind can rest. It does not need to be searching with its imaginings for how God wants us to act. The law sets forth clearly, in writing, understandably, what God wants. That's a tremendous accomplishment. It's a tremendous asset and possession to be able to rest on the platform of the law of God. And anyone living within the setting of revealed religion within a true church or in the influences of the gospel has that great advantage. It goes on. There is a special relation to God. You boast of your relation to God. And here the idea is that God has taken the people uh, to whom he has revealed himself under his wing. And he's given them unusual care and comfort. Not that they do not experience some of the calamities and illnesses of life. Of course they do. But God says, I'll be with you through them. I will be your God. There's an unusual relation between 
a community of a Jew or a Christian to God. He goes on. And you know his will. That is, you don't have to guess. Many are guessing about the will of God. They use cards, they use stars, they use Ouija boards, trying to discern the will of God. But you know his will. That is, in its broad outlines, you know what God wants. His kingdom established, righteousness to prevail, love and peace between peoples. You know the will of God. You may have difficulty with some of the precise applications in small ways, but you know in broad outline what the will of God is. That's a tremendous privilege. Instead of being subjected to guesswork or conjecture, to be able to say, I know what God wants. And the privileges continue. You approve what is excellent. That is, more than you probably realize, as a person brought up in the context of revealed religion, you have gotten the ability to discriminate between right and wrong. You know what is ugly and ungodly as opposed to what is righteous and beautiful. You don't have to fall into some of the sad mistakes you see around you. A great privilege of the community of God to approve what is excellent. And the listing goes on. It suggests to us that one of the great benefits and privileges of those who receive God's favor in revealed religion is an external pledge of God's care and covenant. Here the external pledge is circumcision. Now this physical sign was given to the people of God in the Old Testament. It was a sign to them that the law was theirs and that they were to obey it. Circumcision requires obedience to the law. Circumcision went on to say, you are a part of the visible people of God. You're, a, you're numbered with the community of faith. This sign marks you as one of us. Not every circumcised person was born again. But everyone was included in the visible community of faith. Circumcision meant that you are a worshiper of the true God as opposed to a worshiper of idols. That is, the true God is your God. You have nothing to do with idol worship. And circumcision meant you are to consider and seek for the inner cleansing of the heart and the will. An inner holiness is the will of God for you. What an inestimable privilege to have this mark of God upon a community, something visible that had deep significance. And we have within our community the sacraments of God, signs and seals of his covenant. Baptism, for example, means the very things. Whoever has the sign of baptism upon him is required to obey God. And he says, repent and believe. 
If you've been baptized, that is God calling you to repent and believe in the gospel. That's the mandate of your baptism. Your baptism means that you are numbered with the visible people of God, that you are a part of them, and that as such you partake of all these great privileges which are theirs. Baptism means that God is your God. You have nothing to do with the secular humanists of the hour. Baptism has set you apart to belong to God. Baptism is to get your attention within, to show you how your inner will has to be washed with the pure water of the Word and the Holy Spirit so that there can be inner holiness water over the skin is simply to symbolize the water of God flowing over the human heart. Oh, what great privileges given to the people of God. And one other is listed in chapter 3, verse 2. The oracles of God. And here the idea is that the Jewish people received as a sacred treasury the divine truths which were given from heaven, infallibly revealed from God as a kind of divine deposit which they were to cherish, protect, and love and disseminate to the world. An oracle is like a fountain that spouts forth godly wisdom. And the oracles of God the word of God was entrusted to the Jews. We in the Christian church have also been given the oracles of God, not in, only in the Old Testament scriptures, but alike in the New Testament scriptures. And so there is within our community this depository of revealed truth, which is the ultimate authority to which we turn and which is our sacred treasure. The enjoyment of any people, the greatest enjoyment any people can ever have is to have the word of God and his ordinances in their midst. And we have that. And I sense that there may be someone here today, perhaps a young person, who is not sufficiently aware of the great privilege you have of being surrounded with these tremendous advantages. You have taken the law of God for granted, the relation to God easily. The will of God has become nothing to you. You don't even appreciate that you can approve what is excellent. And your own baptism you have forgotten and sloughed off altogether, not at all cherishing and prizing it. And the fact that the Holy Scriptures, the oracles of God, rest in the center as the base of your community seems irrelevant to you. Oh, young friend, I ask you in the name of God to cherish these great blessings into which you have been born, to marvel at the privilege and favor that the eternal God has bestowed upon you, that you do not have to grope in darkness towards some idol or venerate some statue, 
You do not have to press over beads or climb up a, a shrine on hands and knees as if to placate some deity. God, in his sovereign wisdom, has put you in the context of his true religion. And your great attitude should be, thanks be unto God for his unspeakable gift. Oh, what a privilege to be set down in the midst of the community of faith. Every young person here, cherish that, love it, thank God for it. Yet the passage turns, and after celebrating the privilege, it suggests that these privileges have obligations, that every privilege carries with it duty. And the higher the privilege, the greater the duty. And if the privilege is left uncherished, unused, unloved, it becomes an accusation. And that which was meant for blessing dooms us to hell. The privilege of being in the midst of true religion can become the bane of our life. How does that happen? It comes when we have a wrong view of the law of God. Suppose we were to take this law and give it lip service. Yes, I know the commandments, of course. So I'm not quite sure if it's six or seven, but I know them generally. Yes, I know them. We give them lip service. We may even teach them to others. We may think we're obeying them simply because we don't really understand what they demand. But we have never taken the law of God so seriously that it utterly demolishes us, brings us to our knees, and makes us cry out to mercy for God that we could be saved because we can never keep this law on our own. If you have a superficial, a lip service, easy idea of the law of God, it will never do its convicting work. It will never make you see how far short you fall and make you cry out for mercy to the forgiving God. We can also stand in great peril because of the privileges by a wrong view of the sacraments which God has given us. We can rest in baptism and the Lord's Supper as badges of discipleship and figure that because we have been baptized or taken the Lord's Supper, that everything is fine with us. Now that's what the nominal Jew did. He said, for example, that no one who was circumcised could ever get into hell. He thought that circumcision in itself as a physical act of cutting in itself had a merit and a virtue. He thought that circumcision, the act itself, 
guaranteed the inner spiritual meaning, that these two were one, the external and the internal, and if you did the external, the internal was guaranteed. And that is what Paul is struggling against here by the power of the Holy Spirit. We can never say that baptism in itself, the waters in themselves, have any merit or power whatsoever. They do not. The more unspiritual a church becomes, the more it trusts in the waters of baptism to actually wash away sin. But the closer a church is to the true word of God, the more it sees baptism as a sign and seal of a covenant. It sees baptism as a picture pointing to something of great significance. Baptism is a pledge of God that those who will obey his covenant will receive its benefits. There is nothing magical about baptism, nothing which takes place automatically, but something which points to the work of God within the soul. Therefore, your baptism is to call you to obey God to repent as he has commanded you to do and to believe and to be washed in the inner man by the washing of water and the word. And if your baptism does not accomplish that in you, then you have not built upon it. You have not improved it. You have not utilized it. It is empty and vain as the circumcision of an unbelieving Jew. It's something like a young man who receives his college education from his father. And he thinks that simply being on the campus and showing up occasionally for classes and taking tests is enough. And at the end, somehow he manages to get a diploma. And he thinks that he's ready for life. Then he shows up at his first job. And he realizes that all the classes he missed and the readings left undone and the research uncompleted have caused him to be unready when the moment came. He had a great opportunity. A tremendous privilege was put right before him. It would have been his had he laid hold on it. But he never improved the gift made it his own. And so the great peril for those of us who live within the Christian community is that we will see the sacraments as something magical, automatic, a kind of badge which we can show when we enter heaven, but we will never see their deep and true meaning which call us to repentance and faith and a new heart. There's another real peril for those in the context of the community of God. And that is wrong thinking. These two ideas are in three, one to eight. For example, some will say, since I am in the community of faith, I sin and 
I expect to suffer somewhat for that sin, but I will in the last analysis be received into heaven anyway because I'm part of this community. God, after all, will not be faithless to his covenant, and he's made a covenant with the community. But that's wrong thinking. There is no badge that can thwart the wrath of God from the unholy. Simply being part of the visible people of God, numbered with him by circumcision or by baptism, yet unfollowed through, does not guarantee entrance into heaven. That's why the whole thrust of chapter 2 has been, he will deal with everyone according to his works. Justification is on the basis of faith, but God's judgment looks in reality upon what actually is. And no one simply flashing the badge of his own discipleship can thereby cover a life lacking in holiness and righteousness before God. There is another error here which is refuted, and that is the idea that since sin is so graciously covered by the mercy of God, I should sin more and more that there may be more and more of God's glory shown. Do a little evil that a lot of good may come. And here, Paul appeals to our obvious sense of justice. No, he says, whoever thinks this has a condemnation that is just. Do you realize that the transgression of God's people is even more hideous in his sight than the transgression of the heathen? When God sees his own people's sin, it is more grievous to him than the sin of idolatry on the part of paganism. So, these two great themes come together in this section. God has given to us his people great privileges for which we must be very grateful and we must savor all our days. But those privileges come very close to presumption and may fall into peril and our sinful ways may even twist them so that by a wrong use of the law, a wrong reliance upon sacraments, a wrong pattern of thinking with regard to judgment, we may not use the gracious privileges given to us. What then are we to do? The answer is we're to glory in God. He doesn't want us to glory in our heritage, in itself. I am a member of this particular community. He doesn't want us to glory in the law or in the sacraments or in the oracles of God in themselves. Thankful, yes, but our glory, the place in which we boast and revel, is to be in God alone. That's why Jeremiah writes, Him that glorieth, let him glory in the Lord. Now this is beautifully stated in verse 29. 
circumcision is a matter of the heart, spiritual and not literal. You see, God is not making Jews or Gentiles. He's making men and women who will glorify him. That's what he wants. And so the person he wants is the one whose heart has been circumcised in a spiritual way rather than a literal way. What does that mean? Well, the spiritual circumcising of the heart is the cleansing of the will and the freeing of the heart from evil imaginations and the mortifying of residual evil in the heart. And it is only God who can circumcise the heart. Men can circumcise the flesh, but only God can do that. He promises to do it in Deuteronomy 10, verse 16, where he says, The Lord thy God will circumcise thy heart and the heart of thy seed, that thou mayest love the Lord thy God. So that circumcision in a literal sense here would mean formal, external, nominal religion. Circumcision in a spiritual sense would mean that the soul allows God to enter into the heart and in a radical surgery cuts away the clingings of the flesh and creates there a new heart, not stony, but a heart of flesh which is now able to love God and serve him. Now the great temptation that we feel right at this point is to say then we don't need any external sacraments or signs. All we need is the inner working of God in the heart. He says, no. There are great advantages. The point is not to do away with baptism, to do away with the Lord's Supper because these have perils in them. No, every gift of God has a peril in it. The point is to use these in the very way God has created them so that we take our baptism and we see in it a command to repent and we repent and believe him. And we see in the baptism a mandate for newness of life. So every day we sense that the old man dies more and more and we live every day unto God in newness of resurrection life. We live out the baptism. We don't disregard it. We don't demean it. We don't put it away as unnecessary or invaluable. It is instituted by Christ as a great benefit. But we take it and cherish it and build our Christian life on the heart of its meaning and we live it out with great joy. Then God can circumcise the heart. He can see in our longing for the washing of the water within that we want to mortify the flesh and we want to live unto him, not unto the world. And so baptism becomes for us a daily prayer for the sanctifying grace of God to make our life new and fresh and vibrant. Not to cast away, but to see the real deep and spiritual meaning in the external forms which God has given. This is the new heart 
that new heart embodies the law. Now the law is seen not as an ugly, narrow, restricting device of old days that must be put away as obsolete, but the law is seen as a glorious guideline for a dynamic life, as a way to see the actual agenda for what to do for others. And the Lord's Supper is seen as the providing of God for nourishment along the way of the pilgrimage that we may have energy to do his will and his work. And the oracles of God are not simply contained in the covers of a book to be admired, but they begin to be lived out and they give shape and style to the life of the new heart. That's the life that glorifies God. Not a life that cherishes its heritage in itself in a boastful and proud way. That's a sure way to go to hell. Nor the life that presuming upon these privileges falls into the awful perils of formalism, ritualism, nominalism, and trusts in the external right But the life that glorifies God is the new heart life where the heart has been and is being daily cleansed and renewed and the person lives heart to heart with God and his motto is him that glories let him glory in the Lord. Gracious and eternal God, how can we thank Thee that in Thy providence Thou hast placed us in a setting where the law is spoken and the word of the Lord is before us and the sacraments are ours. Oh God, what inestimable privileges but we remember of him to whom much is given, much is required. Oh God, keep us from the perils. Grant us a deep, humble breaking before thy law. Give us grace to improve our baptism, that living in its light and living out its deep spiritual significance, we may be living the new life every day for thy glory and honor through Jesus Christ we ask it.